0: Change your mind about you, where we are on a journey together to awaken to our true identity. I'm your host, Kevin Mack, and today we're going to continue our discussion of the events associated with the fall. In particular, we'll examine how the events following the eating of the forbidden fruit symbolize the establishment of some common human characteristics that continue to beset us to this very day. In the previous episode, we identified the serpent as essentially a spirit of miscreation that exists within the human mind. Its presence does not mean that humanity was created defectively or incomplete. Rather, God created humanity in his image and likeness. And because God is love, and love always protects, trusts, and never fails. God advises the man on how to use his extraordinary mind power, but allows him to make his own choices. That's what love does. Love can only exist in an environment of freedom. So love and freedom go together, because love always trusts. Therefore, the man can either use his mind by design to create in God's image, signified by the tree of life, meaning unconditional love, or he can miscreate and suffer adverse consequences as signified by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is otherwise known as conditional love. And because the man and his wife are of the same mind, both understood the nature of these conditions. So the first six verses of Genesis 3 is, for the most part, an internal dialogue going on in the woman's mind. She began to misuse her mind by entertaining some enticing but erroneous thoughts. She did not share these thoughts either with God or her husband. She acted completely independently. And and it's in those situations that it becomes easy to misuse your mind and deceive yourself. And this she did. So she ate the forbidden fruit. And her husband, not wanting to separate from his wife, who was his protector and companion, he goes with her and does the same thing. So now they both have eaten the forbidden fruit, meaning they've deceived themselves and misused their mind. That's where we left off in the previous episode. So, what happens next? That's what we're going to discuss today. So now let's turn to Genesis 3 and verse 7. Upon eating the forbidden fruit, we read that in Genesis 3 and verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The eyes of both of them were open, the scripture says. The implication here is that they were previously blind to something. What they were blind to was separation. In their previous state of mind, the two were one. They were united in mind and heart. There was nothing to hide from each other. That's really the meaning behind Genesis 2.25, where it says they were both naked but unashamed. Physical sexual intercourse, in, by design, pictures the unity of mind and heart between male and female, between God and his Son, between the Word and God. However, all that changes after eating the forbidden fruit, that is, choosing to miscreate. Now they see, that is, perceive one another differently. They perceive one another no longer as unified in mind, but perceive one another as separate bodies. Thus they have begun substituting bodily identity, for spirit or mind identity. This change alarms them, so they become frightened. Here, my friends, this scene pictures the initial making of fear in the human mind. It did not exist before. We see this fear manifested by each of the two making coverings for themselves. They now fear intimacy with one another, uh, which is a form of sexual dysfunction. By perceiving one another as separate bodies, coupled with fear, they now associate shame with nakedness. Thus, they hide the most intimate neurotic erotic parts of themselves from one another. So now what happens? Verse 8 of Genesis 3. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. In verse 8, we get our first evidence of God's presence since the time the woman encountered the serpent. Serpent, where's he been? Why didn't he show up in time to save his children from eating the forbidden fruit? Did the separation that the man and the woman detect amongst themselves also occur between them and God? In this case, it is the man and the woman who, by eating the forbidden fruit, were attempting to run away from God. That's why God appears to be absent during the whole ordeal in the first seven verses of Genesis 3. Yet on the contrary, God is always with us. He never leaves or forsakes. It is us who hide from him. And we only hide from those we want nothing to do with, (laughs) which is what the man and the woman are doing here in verse 8. Also notice that God was walking in the garden. Recall from our previous episode that the garden represents the mind. So the awareness of God's presence in the minds of the man and the woman returns in the cool of the day, which is right after sunrise. Sunrise is when a new day is dawning. That's when darkness subsides and light returns. So what is occurring here is the awareness of God's presence returning to the minds of the man and the woman for the purpose of enlightenment. God wants to help them undo their poor choice. But the two of them hide. Why do they hide? let's look at verses 9 and 10 to find out why. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Verse 10, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. The first point we must recognize here is that God wants to walk with the man and the woman. And in other words, he wants to be joined together with them as one. But they don't want that now. In verse 10, the man senses God's presence, but hides from him out of fear. Here, my friends, we have the birth of the concept of the fear of God. The man then blames the presence of this fear on the awareness of his nakedness. So the nakedness, which formerly represented unity, now represents fear. Here is more evidence of what we might call a sexual dysfunction. God's very good creation now has been distorted. Since God is love, the man and the woman now fearing God fear love. And since they were created male and female in love's image and likeness, they are now afraid of their true selves as well as God. To notice how fear has altered their state of awareness Let's continue reading now in Genesis 3 and verse 11. And he said, God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now I ask you, Does the tone of God's voice here invoke a sense of love or a sense of fear in you? God's questions here seem rather judgmental in nature. It's a judgmental tone. He seems to be disturbed by the man and the woman's disobedience to a direct command. But if God is almighty and therefore cannot be opposed, why would God be disturbed about anything? There would be nothing the man and the woman could do to upset his plans. So what we are reading here in verse 11 is not God's actual response to the man's statement, but rather it is the man and the woman's distorted interpretation of God's response based solely upon their newfound fear of God. The fact that this is so comes out in the man's response to God's questions. In Genesis 3 and verse 12, the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Well, here it is, my friends. (laughs) The establishment of the oldest game in fallen humanity's playbook. The blame game. The man projects the responsibility for his own choices onto the woman. Easy to do when you perceive one another as separate, right? In his state of mind, the woman now becomes the villain while the man casts himself in the role of the innocent victim. The problem is, by doing this, He, in effect, throws his wife under the bus to save his own skin. Why? Fear of punishment from God. His distorted perception of God prompts him to attack his own wife, his companion and protector. And notice, also, that God gets blamed for this mess. The man says, The woman you here with me in other words you share the blame too. God don't look at me it's not my fault I'm an innocent victim so as the dialogue continues God appears to run with the man's distorted version of the story we see this in verse 13 of Genesis 3 then the Lord God said to the woman what is this you've done The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the woman, after seeing the way her husband responded, in effect decided that, hey, two can play that game. She in turn blames the serpent. Yet this is a clever twisting of her husband's and her own thought process. Earlier we said that the serpent represents the spirit of miscreation and that it is a phenomenon that it occurs in one's own mind. What the woman is actually doing here then is projecting her own thoughts onto an imaginary being outside of herself. Here we have the birth of the phrase the devil made me do it. It is the same concept that causes us to falsely judge another human being by projecting our own thoughts onto them. Why do we project our unwanted thoughts onto others? Why did the woman choose to project her thoughts onto the serpent? Why did Adam project his thoughts onto his wife and God? The reason for this projection is is clearly stated in a course in miracles. Let's go to the text in chapter thirteen, section two, and paragraph one. The first verse says, quote, "The ultimate purpose of projection is always to get rid of guilt." End quote. Both the man and the woman feel guilty, and guilt feels terrible so in order to get rid of it they project it outside of themselves but oddly you don't get rid of the guilt in this way why because ideas do not leave their source and projection of guilt is their idea A Course in Miracles confirms this in the text, chapter 13, section 2, paragraph 2, verses 2 and 3, where it says, You project guilt to get rid of it, but you are actually merely concealing it. You do experience the guilt, but you have no idea why. End quote. Thus, the projection of guilt onto another is merely a form of self-deception. We attempt to project guilt, but nevertheless it remains. And because we experience guilt, we expect punishment out of the fear that such guilt produces. We see that clearly in the verses that follow. We're not going to read them, but we're going to summarize them. In verses 14 and 15, we have God punishing the serpent. In verse 16, God punishes the woman with painful child-rearing in the introduction of an of an oppressive hierarchical patriarchy. And in verses 17 through 19, God curses the ground from which he formed the man and refers to the man as mere dust. Is this a God of love speaking? Is such punishment constructive and beneficial? Clearly what we're seeing in these verses is a distortion of the true God of love. A God of love does not punish. Remember, perfect love drives out fear and therefore punishment as well, as it says in 1 John 4.18. Rather, what is actually happening is because the man and the woman continue to harbor their own guilt, they have effectively asked for punishment. And Jesus stated in the Sermon on the Mount, what we ask for in spirit, we receive in Matthew 7 and verse 8. Yet there's another related principle that comes into play here. And that principle is, we can only give what we have first received. Luke puts it this way in Luke chapter 6 and verse 38. He said, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, in the last few verses of Genesis 3, what has the man and the woman received? They unknowingly asked for punishment and received it. Yet since they were created in the image and likeness of God, and that's a fact that cannot be changed, the goodness of God still remains in them. But because they have also now received punishment, they have put their minds in a state of conflict. And the scripture goes on to describe this conflict symbolically as we read in Genesis 3 and verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Up until this time, the male and female images of God have been referred to as the man and the woman or the man and his wife. The two are treated as one in this reference. But here in verse 20, a change takes place. Adam now names his wife Eve in the same way that he named all the animals back in Genesis 2 verses 19 and 20. Those animals were determined by him, to not be suitable companions. Likewise, the conflict that now exists in the man and the woman's minds will now present unwanted difficulty in their companionship. Where before the woman was bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, a part of the man's own self, the man's companion and protector, She is now taking on a new and separate identity as Eve. Eve is to become the mother of the living. What is the significance of this change? We see it again symbolically here in verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Because Adam and Eve chose to experience the way of death by eating the forbidden fruit, their spirits now become encased or imprisoned in separate physical bodies subject to death. They're no longer free spirits living as one. The two separate names, Adam and Eve, now signify two separate identities associated with each of their individual physical bodies. They now, for the first time, fully perceive themselves as flesh and blood human beings subject to death. All of this, remarkably, they asked for. And since flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50. They made the choice to leave the Garden of Eden on their own and begin a substitute world where Eve becomes the mother of all the living. Verses 22 through 24 of Genesis 3 say something that appears to be different. It indicates that God expelled them from the garden to prevent them from eating from the tree of life. Here, once again, is a case of human beings projecting their own guilt onto God, blaming God for a decision they were responsible for. By doing this, They cast God as a fear-mongering, merciless bully out to protect what is his, while they, as weak and disowned children, go cowering away from him in fear. This perception of God is indeed a gross distortion of his character and a clear indication that Adam and Eve are no longer in their right minds. It is this very condition of mind that afflicts the human race to this very day. All of us have learned it from our predecessors, from the world around us. And it is this condition of mind that the great spiritual teachers throughout history have sought to change so that our eternal birthright may be restored and experienced. In other words, these teachers have been sent by God to show us how to take the sour lemons that we have made and turn it back into the sweet, refreshing lemonade that is our God-created birthright. This podcast is one part of that transformational effort. And now with that said, we bring this episode of Change Your Mind About You to a close. Thank you for listening today. I'm your host, Kevin Mack, reminding you that the choice to use our powerful minds to miscreate has resulted in the birth of fear in our world. Some of the ways in which this fear manifests itself is through the blame game, the projection of our own guilt onto others, and perceiving our existence as a collection of independent, unrelated fragments symbolized by human bodies subject to death. All of these manifestations are indicative of our conflicted state of mind. Yet, because God is love, and love never fails, this state of affairs is both changeable and therefore temporary so that we may be restored to our original God-created state of mind, perfectly reflecting His image and likeness. It is the goal of this podcast to assist in bringing about this much-needed and much-wanted in our heart of hearts transformation. So, until next time, take good care and take